Greetings. Thanks for tuning us in on the Maine Question podcast from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ryan Liznet. Food. A four-letter word that we can all agree on is pretty non-controversial. It not only sustains life, it is for many one of the great joys of life. Think of some of the great meals you've had over the course of your life, the special times with family and friends, maybe enjoying an old family favorite during the holidays. But food is so much more than what sustains our bodies and our lives. It's an industry, a livelihood for many. It defines culture, drives politics, science, and healthcare. Rob Dumas is a person who has as unique a perspective on the subject of food as probably just about anybody on the planet, it's fair to say. He is the Food Science Innovation Coordinator and Facility Manager for UMaine's Food Pilot Plant and Test Kitchen. These facilities exist as laboratories for students in the Food Science and Human Nutrition program. Faculty also do work there, and food businesses use these spaces to develop new food products and try out ideas. Rob oversees all of that. It is the latest stop on an interesting and varied career path in the food business that began with cooking for 120 sailors underwater on a nuclear sub in the Navy. He has some pretty interesting stories to tell about that experience. But from there, it got even more interesting. He landed a job in the White House, cooking for President Obama and his family, as well as thousands of guests at formal state dinners, another gig that took him all over the world. We had so many questions about both of these gigs and got to ask him a few. They could have been standalone podcast episodes all on their own. But we were also interested in the work Rob does at UMaine for and with students and faculty, the work he does to help companies develop new products, the meaning of the Made in Maine brand, and so much more. I shouldn't have done this interview on an empty stomach. Here now, our conversation with Rob Dumas. Well, I've been looking forward to this podcast. Food is probably everybody's in their top three of favorite subjects, I would imagine. Thanks for taking the time to visit with us. Absolutely, Ron. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And um, I would echo that sentiment that food is my uh, one, two, and three in my top favorite subjects to talk about. A necessity and uh, something to look forward to, certainly. Uh, You know, the subject of food is so complex and wide-ranging. Obviously, you have to eat to live, but you got health, nutrition, culture, economy, jobs, politics, when you look at it from the 30,000-foot view, how, how do you look at all of these topics and food in general, big picture? Food is an essential to life. When you reduce it down to that, you know, it, it really kind of hammers home the concept that, that food is a human right, access to food is a human right, you know, that, that good food is a human right, and, and it kind of starts to lay bare some of the, you know, the inequities and the and the shortcomings of our current food system. And, you know, through that lens, I think that, you know, Maine is a, a remarkable case study in that we, we do have a climate that can support nearly year-round food production. Despite our cold winters and short growing seasons, there are a lot of strategies to still produce and harvest food year-round. But there's still a lot of food insecurity in Maine, and there's still, you know, a lack of access for some people um, to overcoming that food insecurity. But I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to be part of this larger conversation about food and about, you know, the, the different innovative strategies that folks here in Maine are using to kind of meet the, you know, multifaceted challenge that is feeding the human race, you know, or feeding Mainers. It's it's ever evolving. I think um, as, 
as new technologies come out and they, they get, you know, a few years running in real time, we, you know, realize things about them that maybe we didn't anticipate going into it. I can completely understand why uh, the drive towards, you know, controlled animal feeding operations was so appealing. The yields are remarkable. You know, the amount of food that you can produce in a relatively small footprint and the amount of people you can feed with that is remarkable. Um, but it has its environmental ills and it has its socioeconomic ills as well. Um, same thing with widespread use of monoculture agriculture. Again, the yields are remarkable, but as we are, you know, better understanding the ecological impacts of that, we're starting to in- implement more strategies around building soil and, and soil regeneration and, and the importance of that. And, um, and you know, here at Humane, we've got so many smart people working on this. They're not necessarily trying to demonize the existing industries, but help them grow and help them evolve to, you know, better serve humans today. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very exciting time to be alive. So you're part of the Food Science and Human Nutrition Program at Humane. It, among other things, run the pilot plant and the test kitchen. Talk about those facilities. So what happens there? What, what, what do you do there? The primary facility that I spend most of my time in is called the Dr. Matthew Highlands Pilot Plant. And it was built in 2007 as an addition onto Hitchner Hall at UMaine here in Orno. And the pilot plant is a uh, food processing facility and it has a variety of different food reducing, food cooking, and food preserving equipment as well as some analytical equipment to um, understand some of the characteristics and properties of those foods. And the pilot plant is, is unique in that it kind of serves two purposes. Um, its principal purpose is to facilitate um, research and academic study for um, students and faculty within the School of Food and Agriculture. Um, but then I have a split appointment, so I work for the Office of Innovation and Economic Development, and through that lens, I get to leverage the functionality of the pilot plant to serve Maine's agricultural industry. So um, in that capacity, I'm kind of fulfilling that land-grant mission and that I'm a resource and I'm able to use the capital investment that we've made here on campus to serve industry in Maine by doing product development, uh, by looking at process efficiency, looking at uh, revalorization of waste products. A lot of that work has been really exciting and I think that there's been some pent-up demand for assistance in that area and it's been pretty cool to get to discover all of these opportunities throughout Maine to interface with with established Maine uh, brands and help develop new food products to bring more Maine foods to market all over the country and world. And the test kitchen is our is, is a commercially licensed facility and it is principally used for um, academic instruction. Um, so a lot of the FSN 101, 103, 104, those classes are facilitated in that kitchen space. And it, it's a nice space for that. It has six identical workstations. So students are able to work in there either individually or in pairs. And they get real hands-on experience, understanding some of the fundamental principles of cooking food and, and the nutrition and what some of the scientific principles are that, you know, when you cook in an alkaline environment, you know, what kind of cellular degradation and color changes do you see? And um, so some pretty neat labs happen in there. But in addition to the academic use of that space, it is a commercially licensed kitchen by the Department of Ag, Conservation and Forestry. And what that means is it can be used for food production by the public and that food can then be sold in a retail setting. 
Now that license is limit or that licensure is somewhat limited in that it is only covers foods that are not temperature controlled for safety. So things that would fall into that category would be things like jams, jellies, pickles, baked goods, um, foods that either have a low enough water activity or a low enough pH to be shelf stable. Now I know you talked about some of the companies and projects that you are working on currently, and we could go on for a long time about some of those, but maybe just give us a brief thumbnail, just a couple sentences about some of the more interesting projects you have on the, on the docket right now. One of my favorite companies that I'm getting to work with right now is uh, Maine Grains in Skowhegan. Uh, Maine Grains is a, a relative newcomer in Maine's landscape of food companies, and they are doing some really remarkable work to create opportunity for farmers in Maine to kind of continue the tradition of growing grain crops here in Maine. So things like wheat, farro, uh, kamut, barley, oats, and what Amber, the founder of Maine Grains, has done is she has taken what used to be the Somerset County Jail and turned it into a grist mill. Um, and grist mills are kind of a, a novel way to process grains. It's a little bit different from what you would see in your traditional flour mills. Um, grist mills allow for a, a more nutritious final product and that it is um, there's less of the stripping away of the nutritive parts of the grains and more of it's just being ground and incorporated in. So you've got a, a better quality product, more flavor, more nutrition. And, you know, really it was a missing link in the landscape for Maine producers to be able to grow a premium product and then sell it for a premium price. Um, so they're better supported by selling through a Maine grains rather than selling to a, um, you know, into a commodity harvest. So the work that I've been doing with Maine Grains has been around developing new retail items that Amber can brand and sell under the Maine Grains brand. So things like, like a wild mushroom and herb barley pilaf, you know. So as a consumer, you pick up the package of, you know, Maine grown barley with wild mushrooms and herbs in there. Um, it's shelf stable. You go home, you add water, you cook it for 20 minutes, and you've got an incredible side or main course if you, um, you know, are a vegetarian or a vegan household. Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's been really fun product. Currently, we're working on a pretty cool bread mix project for Amber where we're going to try to capitalize on the kind of inertia and momentum that the craft beer industry has produced as a, um, as a new user of locally grown grains. You know, companies like Allagash and Fogtown Brewing, um, they're using 100% main sourced grain bill in their beer. And so what we wanna do is create a bread mix where you add one of those beers to more of those main grown grains and produce your own delicious beer bread fresh out of the oven at home. And uh, we've got some pretty fantastic um, you know, samples or iterations that we've worked up so far. And I'm super excited to see that one hit shelves. I'm hungry already. You're talking about product development. Is there another level of uh, planning or investment that food producers in Maine need to really go to the next level? You talk about like the infrastructure of the grist mill. Is that the kind of thing that will help the food industry progress? There's a lack of processing infrastructure here in Maine. Um, you know, Angus King once famously said that, you know, no fish should leave Maine with its head on. And what he was getting at there is that, you know, there's an opportunity to, to add more value to the food products 
um, through some degree of processing here in Maine, and we lack that infrastructure. Um, there are very few folks who have the, the capital and the, the necessary experience to kind of develop those facilities. Um, so one of my you know, plans here, and this is based on uh, my time that I lived in Vermont, would be to build out some sort of an incubation space or a co-processing space. And we submitted this idea for a couple of different funding opportunities under the name of the Food Innovation Center. And the idea is that this innovation center would would be a uh, a conduit for an entrepreneur who has an idea but doesn't necessarily have the capital to invest to build out a food manufacturing facility. Uh, we would be able to provide the facility. Um, they would invest in some equipment that ultimately they would be able to take with them. The facility would be somewhat modular and then they could develop some of their food product, sell it, start to develop some, you know, some sales relationships and some incoming revenue, and then leverage that into, you know, a relationship with a bank or a lending institution to build out their own facility. And so a little bit of kind of economic development. But in addition to that, you know, we've been part of the conversation around you know, cooperative processing. Um, the wild blueberry industry has been kicking that idea around for a little while. It's tough to get a lot of people to all get together and invest in something that is uh, as kind of risky as, as food manufacturing, I guess. Can you talk about your work with mussels? I know you're working with a company on that and the whole concept of ocean aquaculture versus more traditional harvesting of seafood. Mussels are, you know, an amazing um, food product in the sense that mussels fall into that category of agriculture that you would call regenerative agriculture. And what's exciting about that is, is that when they are produced in an area, they actually leave that environment better than they found it. So they are improving the area that they are produced in, which, which you know, most forms of agriculture are somewhat subtractive in that you have to take nutrients and you have to take ingredients from somewhere else and bring them to one place to, to produce edible food for humans. Mussels, on the other hand, can be, uh, especially in an aquaculture setting, they can be seeded on ropes. Those ropes can be grown on, on floating little rafts and the mussels feed on you know, the plankton and things like that that are in the water. They clean the water and filter it and they produce an, an incredibly nutritious source of protein for people. Now, you know, mussels typically enter into the consumer market as a live product. So they're, they're sold in those little mesh bags, normally about two pounds per bag. And the expectation is that the consumer will purchase them, um, go home and prepare them uh, fresh to eat. And typically mussels are eaten directly from their shells. So they, are, they, they have an adductor muscle that attaches the muscle meat to the shell, and you kind of have to shear that off either with a spoon or, or with your um, teeth. And it's a little bit tedious to eat mussels, which I think is a disservice to them as a, as a sustainable food source. So I've been working with a gentleman who's both a researcher and the founder of Pimicwid Muscle and Oyster Farm, uh, Carter Newell, or Dr. Newell. He has a processing facility in Bucksport, Maine, where he brings his ocean-grown mussels to be bagged and sorted. And right across the street from his processing facility is Greenhead Lobster. And the lobster industry in Maine has started to invest in a technology called HPP, or High Pressure Processing. 
High pressure processing is an innovative food pasteurization technology in the sense that it uses pressure rather than heat to reduce the microbial load on food products and help extend their shelf life. In addition to the extension and shelf life, HPP also allows for a kind of novel outcome with both lobsters and mussels in that it causes the, the actual muscle fibers of the animal to retract and release from the shell. So, you know, historically, if you were to buy a lobster that wasn't alive or in the shell, you would have to steam it and then pick the meat out of the shell. Same thing for a mussel. You'd have to cook it and then remove the meat from the shell. What HPP allows you to do is it allows you to process it through the pressure, and then once it comes out, the meat releases from the shell with no effort. It just falls right out. So pretty cool that you can actually get a raw shellless lobster um, from folks like Greenhead and uh, Reedy Seafood. They're selling it under the brand Cold Cracked. And Carter Newell wanted to take a note from their book and do the same thing with his mussels. And he has sent me a few bags of what is essentially a raw shellless mussel. From a culinary perspective, that's really exciting because Anytime you apply heat to a protein, it shrinks and it retracts and it becomes firmer. So if a muscle had been steamed and then you were to add another preparation step post that, you would ultimately have a pretty tough, small food that's not terribly palatable. It would be edible, but it might not be delicious. What, what Carter's muscles allow you to do is approach cooking them in a way that has probably never been done before in that we are taking them, breading them like you would a clam, or a, it is, and then frying them so that you have a crispy, delicious mussel that's juicy, has a that great kind of salty, briny flavor, very similar to an oyster or a clam, um, but has never really been sold in the main seafood shack kind of, uh, you know, or the coastal New England seafood, um, you know, kind of fried seafood basket that so many tourists love to come up here and get and, and will pay top dollar for. So um, Carter and I have been working on that product for a little while now, and uh, we have some really good uh, base iterations, but um, we're hoping to um, get this into the consumer market sometime this year or next year. And, um, and I think that the story behind that um, needs to be told. I think people need to understand, you know, just how sustainable mussels are as a choice of seafood in that they, you know, they're not wild harvested. They're not, you know, being uh, taken from the ocean at some disproportionate rate that's ultimately harming the total population. You know, they're being grown and healing the ocean in a sense while producing a delicious and sustainable food product for us. So um, really, really exciting implications with that. And, uh, and to be totally honest, they're, they're super delicious. So I think they're going to be a grand slam. You know, it's hard to keep up with all the trends involving food these days. Maybe you can just real briefly touch on some of those superfoods, farm to table, locally sourced foods, diet fads like keto and paleo. It's hard to keep up, isn't it? So that's an you know an outcome of this this age of information and this increased connectivity. There there's an a, an amazing amount of opinions out there around you know what people should be eating and and you know what we should be doing to be skinny and beautiful and so on. But it's it's really important to to take into account you know the kind of footprint of the food that you're purchasing and the and the implications of those purchase decisions. Um, you know I'm a, I'm a big proponent of. A, a smaller food system of, um, of trying to eat a diet that is um, seasonally appropriate um, as much as 
possible. You know, I think that um, the region that you live in has some food production capacity, no matter where you're living. And that if you can tailor your diet a little bit, you know, towards what is regionally appropriate for you to be eating, um, it has many benefits. You know, it has benefits in the sense that, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, you are, you are putting some parameters on what you have to work with as a cook and, and as a person feeding themselves. And, and, you know, that makes it a little interesting. It gets you into that, that heritage or that kind of, um, more traditional approach to, you know, eating those winter storage crops in the wintertime, eating those spring greens and spring vegetables in the springtime, you know, summer is just a bonanza of fresh produce and, um, you know, just amazing tomatoes and fruits and so on. And then you get into fall and you've got those amazing pumpkins and apples and, uh, you know, a lot of those kind of heavier, warmer foods. You know, I think that, that there's a lot to that in the sense that you know, there's a big economic benefit for your for your local producers. Um, you know, they're raising food in a way that um, their ideals are on display with an enormous amount of transparency. When you go and buy your food from a, from a local farm, um, you know, you can see their production practices. You, you know who you're buying the food from. You know, you're, you're putting their kids through school. You're helping them, you know, buy a new pickup truck to get food back and forth to market. Um, you know, there aren't an enormous amount of middlemen, you know, taking their pound of flesh for, you know, every, uh, every step of that food's journey. Um, and the food hasn't been reduced in a way to take away its nutrition um, in exchange for extended um, shelf stability. Um, you know, a lot of our food has, has, um, has such a long shelf life because a lot of the nutrition has been stripped out of it. And, um, you know, that, that's really kind of creating a health epidemic in a lot of area, in a lot of um, urban areas where, where people are living in a so-called food desert. Um, so I think, I think that, you know, we're, we're blessed here in Maine. We've got an enormous amount of great quality food around us. We've got a rich history of embracing the food that, that Maine can produce and, uh, and a great culinary history as well. So there's so much to tap into there. I am also blessed here at UMaine that many of my colleagues are nutritionists. Um, so they are, you know, they're able to, to share their very informed opinions on some of these diet fads. And, um, you know, for whatever it's worth, uh, cutting an entire food group out of your diet is just not what we are designed as omnivores to do. Um, so there, there is some criticism of these reductionist approaches to, um, you know, being skinny, like cutting out all carbohydrates and eating only protein and things like that. Our bodies just, um, you know, we're omnivores. We were, we were designed to eat thoughtfully. I do think that, um, you, you going back to you have an opportunity to support what you believe in when you purchase food it's not probably the best plan to eat meat three meals a day um, and to eat enormous amounts of meat i think the science is pretty clear that um, you know that takes a, a, a pretty heavy toll on the environment um, you know meat production requires a lot of inputs it produces a lot of outputs and um, you know, and it's and it's relatively hard on the people that are working in that industry. So, if you can lighten your dependence on that a little bit and embrace more, you know, fruits and vegetables and complex grains in your diet, I think that's a great opportunity to support a, a, a more holistically healthy food system in general, which in turn will feed all of us for longer and will feed us with better quality calories. So, Michael Pollan said it very well. You know, eat mostly plants with some meat. You know, I think that's a really simple way to put it. So I'm betting you have one of the more unique resumes out there. I would love to do a, 
a podcast just on, on two of the previous gigs that you've had. I'm not sure many people can say that they've cooked for a crew hundreds or thousands of feet below the surface of the ocean and for world leaders at the White House. Can you talk about, first of all, what is it like to cook for a crew on a Navy submarine? Sure, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about my time on the USS Oklahoma City, SSN 723. Um, so I joined the Navy um, a couple years out of high school. Um, I grew up in, in southern Louisiana and uh, grew up cooking and ultimately uh, determined that, that joining the military was a great way for me to um, generate money to go to college. Uh, culinary school was quite expensive and I was a military brat, so I had a little bit of a push in that direction anyways. But um, I, I enlisted in the Navy, and my first uh, duty station was a fast attack submarine out of Norfolk, Virginia. Um, submarines are an amazing um, you know, feat of engineering in that um, they're, they're pretty much self-sufficient. You know, they, they hold about, about 120 to 140 crew members. Um, and they are capable of operating at sea more or less indefinitely uh, with the exception of their food supply. And um, I reported on board as a culinary specialist. Um, so I was part of a small division that was responsible with feeding the crew. Um, on a submarine, you eat four meals a day um, because you, know, the, you can't just go to bed and let the sub drive itself. So there are people awake 24 hours a day managing you know, every aspect of the ship from its uh, nuclear reactor to the sonar to you know, um, operating the stern planes and, um, you know, and everything in between. Um, my job as a, as a cook was you know, maybe uh, understated a little bit in, the, in its overall importance. Um, you know, being, being a cook on a sub, you are, the, you are the arbiter of the only joy that these people will have when they're underway. Doing your job well has, a, has an enormous impact on the morale of the crew. So for one, I wanted to show up for my shipmates. You know, they had to come to work and do their job every day, so I was going to come up and do mine too. But I also loved cooking, uh, and I've always loved cooking. And it was it was very obvious to the crew that I put a huge amount of effort into the food, and that you know I was going to go above and beyond. Um, you know, whenever I was in charge of the food preparation, and we had a blast. Um, there were. You know, one of the silver linings of being on a submarine is that you do have a little bit more um, funding per person per meal. Um, so the, the, the Navy calls it rations in kind. But then in addition to that, we got a, a sub ration per person. So um, it wasn't uncommon on a, you know, on a weekly basis to have a prime rib and crab leg meal, um, you know, or, or, or things like that. Um, it was a little bit limiting when we were on longer underways in that we had no fresh food. So we didn't even have a refrigerator. All of our refrigerated spaces were converted to freezers and filled with, um, you know, pr filled primarily with meats. Um, then we would have dry spaces all over the submarine where we stored, um, you know, shelf-stable versions of things like milk and heavy cream. And uh, obviously we brought lots of flour and lots of shortening. Um, an incredible amount of coffee. If, uh, if we ran out of coffee, I think that we would have been offloaded on an island in the middle of ocean and just left there. So uh, coffee was a non-negotiable. Um, 
And anyways, the, the loading of the food on the submarine was quite an operation. Um, when I was 21 years old, I placed the largest food order I've ever placed in my life. I had an entire semi-tractor truck show up on Pier 3 at Naval Station Norfolk and off, offload 27 pallets of food that we brought onto the submarine. And that was our 90-day endurance. So we were getting ready to go on deployment. And it took the entire crew creating a chain gang across the pier and onto the submarine to move all of that food onto the boat. And it still took us darn near all day to get all of that food stored, um, so much so that we, we actually ended up putting uh, cases of number 10 cans down on the floors and then putting plywood on top of the cases of number 10 cans for people to walk on top of. And as we ate our way through the supply, you know, where the where the final step was at when you stepped off the cans got, you know, further and further away. But um, we had, you know, bags of food hanging all throughout the engine room. There were places where we had to lift up deck plates and climb down underneath equipment to store cans of flour and things like that. So, you know, quite, quite an experience in that regard. You know, I did get to, to bond with a lot of those guys in a way that, you know, nothing but military service can really provide. Um, you know, I got to see a lot of the world, um, got to go on a on two different deployments, you know, one of them through the Mediterranean and into the Middle East, and then another deployment in a, in a counter-drug operation down to South America. And, um, you know, an, an enormous amount of perspective is gained when you visit a foreign country and you see the conditions that, you know, people in Panama are living in. Just gives you an enormous amount of gratitude for, for how lucky we are as Americans and, you know, how lucky we are here, but also an enormous amount of empathy, you know, for other humans human beings and, and the, the journey that they're on um, in their lives. So it's, uh, it, it, was a, it was an incredible experience all around. I, uh, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. Um, you know, being on a submarine is very hard. Um, at one point, I was underwater for 87 days straight, and, uh, and that was tough. You better get the grocery list right, I bet. And, and did, they, did they have a favorite go-to meal? I mean, crab legs and prime rib sounds pretty good. That was a popular one, but I think um, if I was to reduce it down to a, a few core foods, um, every Saturday we had pizza night, and um, pizza was incredibly popular. I mean, you got to keep in mind that the crew of a submarine is comprised of 18 to 40-year-old males exclusively, you know, so, so it's like being in a family of all brothers and uncles or something like that, and, uh, you know, guys guys tend to, to like the, you know, the... I don't know, comfort foods, for lack of a better word. So um, pizza was always popular. Chicken wings were always popular. Um, several of my shipmates were, were also from the South. So um, we did some mean fried chicken lunches, you know, with, with uh, you know, biscuits and strawberry shortcake and mashed potatoes and mac and cheese and things like that were always very popular. Um, one of my assignments I was the ship's records keeper um, for the supply department, so I ended up working a night shift to allow myself to have a little bit more time to do records. So when we were underway, I would go on shift at um, 6 p.m. and work until 7 a.m. And when I did that, it meant that I was responsible for all of the baking on a submarine. And um, baking was one of the areas where we really did quite an honest, you know, scratch preparation of everything. Um, bread, hot dog rolls, hamburger buns, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff takes up an enormous amount of space if you were to purchase it pre-baked and frozen. So we baked everything from scratch. And um, the crew loved cinnamon rolls, 
donuts, those breakfast pastries. I mean, I would have guys, you know, opening up uh, hatches and peeking in from the radio room above the galley saying, when are the donuts going to be ready? We can smell them up here. And uh, sometimes I would send a, a bowl of donut holes up to the uh, control room, you know, uh, in, ahead of the meal just to get everybody kind of jonesing for getting off watch so they could come down and eat donuts. And uh, that was always really fun. I, I have fond memories of doing that. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, pizza was probably the most popular thing, though. Um, guys, guys looked forward to that. That and burgers and chocolate chip cookies. Um, I guess I should. Yeah, you know, burgers were always popular and they were the reward. Every Saturday on a submarine, we would have field day. And uh, field day was where regardless of whether it was supposed to be your time to sleep or not, everybody was awake from 7 a.m. until noon, we cleaned. The whole crew cleaned. Everybody, you know, got on their what we'd call poopy suits, which were like a pair of green overalls. And we would, uh, we would deep clean different parts of the boat. And as a reward for that, um, lunch was always, you know, burgers, french fries, and, um, and then we made chocolate chip cookies. And, um, you know, I don't know of anybody that doesn't like a chocolate chip cookie. So those were always popular. So segue from that to cooking for the president and his family and I imagine state dinners and world leaders and who knows who else. What was it like to be a chef at the White House? I guess the the, the beginning of that transition actually started um, when, when I was considering joining the military in general. Uh, I mentioned I was a, a military brat. My father was an Air Force junior ROTC instructor at um, one of the rival high schools where I grew up, and he knew all the recruiters. And when, when I told him I was interested in potentially joining the military, he called the Navy recruiter and told them what my background was and what I was interested in. And when I got there, they had this incredible story for me about how I was going to go on a submarine and I was going to do really well there. And then I was going to get a, I was going to get to go to the White House and cook for the president. And I was just wide-eyed and in awe that that could really happen. And, you know, it actually happened. You know, I, th I thought it was a, a little bit of a story or a tall tale. But what do you know? I, I got the opportunity to interview for a position working for what's called Presidential Food Service. And um, I, that opportunity came uh, towards the end of my time on the submarine. And I, um, I interviewed for it initially with the recruiter from Presidential Food Service and then made it through that interview and had to go through three subsequent interviews with the White House Military Office and then with the OPM, Office of Personnel Management. And that began my background um, or my background inspection for my clearance or background investigation rather for my clearance um, to work at the White House you have to have the highest level of clearance that the that the Department of Defense can offer uh, which is TSSCI Yankee White and that Yankee White bit allows you to actually have first person access to the first family so I was allowed to be beyond that you know kind of final um, layer of Secret Service which was a, a remarkable you know place to find yourself as a you know goofy kid from Louisiana I was like, oh my goodness, I'm standing in President Obama's kitchen with him and his family cooking breakfast. You know, this is, this is almost not even real. And, uh, but anyways, I, I, I got the opportunity to do that. I, I made it through all the interviews and I, I was able to attain the clearance and I reported for duty in, um, 
in 2009, early 2009, and it was um, just just shortly after President Obama had kind of gotten into office and started to get into the swing of things there. And um, it was it was an amazing opportunity. You know, the caliber of individuals I was working with at the White House was was bar none. Um, you know, it was diverse. Uh, we had folks from you know many different backgrounds working there, but they were all hard chargers. You know, everybody that was there cared an enormous amount about doing a good job. Um, and we all put so much effort into making the very best food that we could. Um, you know, President Obama and Michelle Obama had a very progressive agenda around food. Um, they were very thoughtful about, you know, what kind of agriculture was worth supporting and, and what kind of inequities existed within our food system. And uh, Michelle Obama really had a lot of influence over the menus that we wrote, the food that we sourced, and um, the food that we served. And it was, uh, it was very educational for me. It opened my eyes to a different way of thinking about food that I had been somewhat aware of, but not well practiced in. I, I, it changed me a lot as a cook. I, uh, I grew a lot there at the White House. I got involved with the um, American Culinary Federation while I was there. Um, the ACF is the certifying body for chefs in the United States, and I, I got the opportunity to um, initially certify at the chef de cuisine level and then um, go for certification at the executive chef level as well. Um, and I became a leader in the kitchen there. I ended up running the, the White House mess. Um, so a little bit of background on food service at the White House. Um, there are two kitchens within the White House. So there's the residence kitchen, which is in um, in the kind of middle of the White House, and that is run by civilian chefs. And that's um, Chef Chris Comerford, um, Chef Bill Yost was the pastry chef while I was there. And they have a responsibility to feed the first family in a, in a, kind, of, um, in a kind of home capacity or personal capacity. And then in the West Wing, um, directly underneath the Oval Office, is the White House Navy Mess. And um, that has a 67-year uh, um, history at this point that it's been operating there. And it's always been staffed by the Navy. Um, so the Navy's been responsible for feeding um, the White House for, for many decades now. And it is um, a membership-only dining facility. So only the top um, few hundred people in the White House have a privilege of dining in the, in the Navy mess. And we had three different dining rooms based on your uh, level of access or your um, hierarchy within the administration. And then we provided in-office dining for, you know, the highest folks. You know, the president didn't have to come down and pick up his cheeseburger, that's for sure. Um, you know, he had, he had uh, attendees that would, would um, set up dining right in the Oval Office for him, um, as did the chief of staff and the, a few other folks. But um, it, was, uh, it was a great opportunity to work there. It was, it was um, you know, the dining rooms were fine dining. You know, we wore white gloves and vests. We used rulers and we measured every table setting so that everything was spaced exactly the same at every place setting. We had, you know, great quality china, great quality linens. Um, you know, we served very elegantly prepared food and plated food, and we served a lot of it. Um, you know, in addition to the dining rooms, we did takeout service as well. Um, and a lot of the staffers that didn't have dining room privileges would come down and get takeout and then eat it in their offices or, you know, somewhere on the 18 acres. Uh, I mean, you can't beat having a picnic lunch on the White House lawn every day. It was, it was a great experience. But in addition to the day-to-day -day food preparation, I also got to travel with the first family. Um, I got to go um, all over the world, you know, places like Poland. We went to Warsaw for a week. I got to go to uh, Dublin, Ireland, and uh, Bangkok, and Brazil. 
Um, I got to, you know, hang out on the roof of the JW Marriott with President Obama um, in Rio de Janeiro, and they were having dinner on the roof there with Copacabana Beach right down below us, the starry night, the beautiful mountains of, uh, of Rio all around us. And, you know, that was definitely one of those moments where I had to pinch myself because I was just like, I can't believe this is real life. You know, what, a, what an amazing experience to, uh, to have. The whole experience there just was very humbling. Um, you know, President Obama was a, um, an incredibly um, gracious and polite person. He was a great dad. His kids were incredibly polite. Uh, Michelle was an inspirational and and um, and friendly and warm person. Uh, I can't say enough good things about the experience. I um, if I didn't have to go, you know, when it came time for me to reenlist, um, the detailers told me that if I was to reenlist, I would have to go back to a submarine because um, I had done really well on the submarine and that community was undermanned. So they really needed me to go back and be a leader um, within you know the submarine force, but. You know, I think once I had gotten to work at that level and with that caliber of individual and with that caliber of food at the White House, it was pretty hard to imagine, you know, going back to a submarine and um, cooking with, you know, powdered mashed potatoes again and things like that. So I um, I opted at that point to kind of pursue um, my own relationship with food and my own understanding of food in a more intimate way. And um, I made the move to um, the... New England Culinary Institute in Vermont, uh, where I got the opportunity to uh, complete my culinary education and become a an instructor at the college, which was a, a great opportunity. I could think of about a hundred questions to ask you about the whole White House experience, but did you have to do state dinners? And what was the pressure like to to get it right? I mean, you can't you can't have a misstep on the menu, I imagine. You know, state dinners were were a um, were a big undertaking at the White House. Um, you know those those big events feeding thousands of people. You know were a pretty regular fixture um, during my time there. Uh, you know we we came together. You know full tilt. We would have the kitchen completely packed out. You know every station that would normally have one person would have two, and uh, we turned it into just this um, high-paced assembly line. You know, for when you're cooking for two or three thousand people and you've got to feed them all within an hour, um, the degree of preparation that goes into that is just remarkable. Generally, you're pre-searing, you know, hundreds of pieces of protein and you're, you know, blanching thousands of pounds of vegetables and you know typically your starch is you know something that will will hold hot pretty well like a like a potato puree or or something like that and um, then when it's time for service to start it's um, you know just a constant procession of servers and the kitchen line is just pumping you know plate after plate after plate and it was uh, an exciting opportunity to do that it was um, you know I, my initial interactions with that was as just a you know assembly line worker you know being being on the line producing things and ultimately by the end of my time there I was planning some of the menus for the state dinners and orchestrating um, you know that whole operation which was you know really exciting and um, and very nerve-wracking too you know admittedly I was uh, drinking chamomile tea, tea the whole night to keep myself from freaking out but um, but it was a great experience and in addition to that I um, I had a I had the opportunity to go and work for um, Chris Comerford and Bill Yost 
um, the White House puts on quite a uh, Christmas um, party schedule every year. From, from early December right through Christmas, there are uh, twice-a-day parties at the White House. Um, and, you know, those parties are for a wide range of, of um, folks within D.C.'s political world. And typically the parties are for 700 to 2,000 people. Um, so, you know, in a 14-day period, you know, we might feed 20, 28,000 people or something like that, you know, there in the, at the White House. And so the amount of food that had to be produced and the quality, you know, that it had to be produced at was, uh, was just truly remarkable. You know, we'd have a team of 20, 30 people um, and we'd have every single one of those people shucking oysters for, you know, six hours straight or uh, we'd be preparing cheese platters with, um, you know, like 8,000 pounds of cheese, you know, or things like that. And uh, it was just a, a remarkable experience. And then getting to go up into the, the service area where, you know, it's all highly polished silver and just beautiful presentations and, you know, beautiful live carving stations. What, what an experience. I, um, I, I really, really just will never forget um, some of those Christmas parties and getting to be a part of that. Um, I actually took my vacations, you know, my military leave and worked in the residence just so I could be a part of those things. So, um, you know, call me a glutton for punishment, but I just couldn't get enough of uh, getting to be part of that whole food operation. It was, it was awesome. Awesome. Wow. Fascinating. Well, let's uh, bring it back to Maine here and your present day, uh, position, which maybe isn't quite as, as glamorous as exciting, but it sounds like it's it's a lot of fun and very challenging. So how, how would you describe the food system in Maine and the reputation of that made in Maine brand that we've heard so much about? Sure. Well, I would um, I would repute your statement there. I think my job here is every bit as exciting as my job in the White House, and in some ways, even more so because of that food system here in Maine. Um, when, when I made the move from D.C. to Vermont, I did so under the impression that, you know, Vermont was one of the most kind of progressive um, food producing regions and, and um, most forward thinking, you know, uh, food system kind of places in the country. And, and I was actually wrong. Maine, Maine is even more progressive as a food system and more diverse and more remarkable than Vermont. Um, you know, for one, Vermont has zero ocean, right? And Maine has one of the, the largest coastlines in the country. Um, in addition to that, the amount of innovation going on here in Maine is just uh, jaw-dropping. You know, we, we have people that the implications of of their, you know, schemes around food production will, will change the world. You know, they will, they will change the way that people eat everywhere for the better. Um, you know, what we're doing with aquaculture and what we're doing with farming the ocean is, uh, is just absolutely amazing. And in addition to that, you have the, the pride and the humility of those main producers that is just a pleasure to work with. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a cool confidence and a, a degree of, of invitation to collaborate and, um, and appreciation for interest that exists here in Maine that, that I haven't experienced in a lot of other places. Um, sometimes there's a, you know, a, a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of uh, snobbery sometimes when you're at the top of your game. And that just doesn't exist here in Maine. The very best Maine producers, you know, when you tell them that they're amazing, they say, they say, aw shucks and thank you kind of thing. You know, it's just, uh, it's a wonderful place to be. The Made in Maine brand is, is strong. You know, when, when people think about Maine, they think of, uh, 
clean, fresh, open natural spaces, a balance between, you know, production and the environment and ecosystem. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great brand. It's a great place to be. It shocks me that, um, you know, that, that Maine is a, an aging state. Um, though in some regards, there are, there are some exciting trends with, with young people coming here um, to get involved in farming. There are more young farmers in Maine than there are in any other state in the country. And um, I think that's really exciting. And that is a, a harbinger of, of many good things to come, you know, as those people uh, continue to, to learn lessons and and um, get better at what they're doing and, and bring more products to market, I think we're really going to be a food system case study that is bar none in the world here in Maine. Talking about that next generation coming along, maybe talk just briefly about the, the program here at UMaine in food science, human nutrition. What kind of opportunities are there? What kind of jobs are out there? Is this a growth industry for people that are interested in this field? The program that I'm part of here at UMaine is is food science and human nutrition, and um, it's a it's a it's a great opportunity for young people to come here and get an education so that they can be involved in the food system in a capacity that that requires academic training. As a young person that loves food, you know, you can you can get into cooking or you can get into farming and you can do that without a lot of academic discipline. But if you're going to be a food scientist or you're going to be a nutritionist or you're going to be a um, a researcher, you've got to have that that academic discipline and that that um, kind of analytical understanding of of facts and details. And um, we produce some remarkable students here at UMaine. Um, there are great job opportunities out there with um, you know with elevated incomes beyond what you know you could get just working in the food system as a uh, as a processor or a producer. Um, a lot of the jobs that students have been going into, you know, are working in um, quality assurance, um, food safety, product development. Um, many students are going into careers in dietetics and nutrition. And those are all good paying jobs. They're all going to work for places that allow for, um, you know, some work-life balance. They allow for, um, you know, some of those professional benefits like, you know, extended paid time off, um, you know, sabbaticals, training, things like that. Um, you know, great, great opportunities. It certainly would be an industry that has a lot of growth potential. If there's a constant, it is that humans are never going to stop eating or needing to eat. Um, so there's always going to be opportunities for, you know, new food businesses to spring up, for older food businesses to evolve and innovate. There's endless opportunity. Um, one of the exciting things also about UMaine and about the Food Science Human Nutrition Program is it's very diverse. Uh, we have students from all over the world here that are part of this program. So, um, you know, Maine has a little bit of a reputation for kind of being a uh, vanilla kind of place, you know, in the sense that we're a, a largely white uh, demographic. And, um, you know, Marsh Island's probably the, the most diverse five square miles in the whole state by a long shot. And it's exciting. You know, working with people from different cultures gives you an enormous amount of perspective and, and respect for, you know, their situations and where they've come from. And, um, and it's just a beautiful thing to kind of share that knowledge and share that experience. And, um, and everybody's better for it. It's a great place to be and um, a great program. And you certainly won't have any, any challenges finding a job working in, in food. 
I'd love to to do a bunch more stories about the your time on the in the Navy or or at the White House, but uh, unfortunately our time is is limited on this episode here. But maybe as we wrap up here, take us into the near future. What what kinds of things might we see coming over the horizon when you think about food? big picture. What's, what's, what's exciting or, or daunting as you look ahead? In the immediate future, uh, you know, there will be some, some exciting new retail products hitting shelves that will have had their origins here at UMaine. Wyman's Blueberries has been a big uh, partner here, and they've got several retail items that were developed in the pilot plant um, that you'll be able to get at your local Hannaford, uh, which is very exciting. In addition to the exciting work with Wyman's, I also have many collaborations with uh, my colleagues in Cooperative Extension. And um, some of those uh, collaborations have produced some exciting educational opportunities for industry and adult learners. Um, In the very near future, uh, Dr. Colt Knight and I are offering a virtual meat processing school where we will be um, having a collaborator from the University of Kentucky, Dr. Greg Renfro, will be coming in and will be um, breaking down several different animals into their different market forms and also providing HACCP and food safety education in addition to that. And that is in an effort to serve the meat processing industry here in Maine, um, which improves our infrastructure and improves our ability to uh, produce protein here in Maine and um, sell it at a fair price here in Maine. So, So very exciting there. And then another exciting extension collaboration is with um, Kathy Savoy uh, from the uh, Falmouth Extension Office. Um, Kathy is a food system expert and um, has been you know, working for Extension for coming up on 30 years now. And we've been funded by the USDA through a grant called the PDAL, or Professional Development and Adult Literacy Grant. And we're going to be undertaking a uh, three-year, $300,000 grant where we will be teaching about local food systems and accessing local food systems to career tech educator uh, culinary arts instructors. So CTE culinary arts instructors will have the opportunity to participate in uh, a summer institute, um, which is a collaboration between Maine Ag in the classroom and the University of Maine. And um, the kind of cornerstone of that event is a five-day food system tour here in Maine where we will take a bus all throughout um, northern, down east, central, and southern Maine, meeting with different food producers um, and learning about their production practices, what makes their products different, and how to access those products and why you should. And then those culinary arts instructors will build that into their curriculums and help reinforce the importance of the local food system to their students through culinary activities, culinary competitions, and um, a lot of that activity will be funded through grants that will be disseminated through Main Ag in the Classroom as part of this award. So, very exciting. I can't wait to go on a week-long bus tour of Maine's food system and to get to talk to all of those amazing producers throughout the state and then get to share my passion and excitement with our career tech educators um, and ultimately through them to all of their students so the the scope of the impact of this is pretty big and it's um, I just you know have to pinch myself that again that I get to be part of that what a what a cool opportunity so yeah so so lots of fun stuff coming up um, this, you know it's an exciting an exciting road ahead fascinating stuff thank you so much for uh, sharing some time with us no, no problem Ron it was my pleasure and thanks again for the opportunity Thanks for joining us. If you want to find out more about the Food Science and Human Nutrition program at UMaine, head to umaine.edu slash food and agriculture. 
You can find all of our podcast episodes in places like Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Subscribe if you're so inclined. Drop us a note or a comment as well at mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.